First Peter chapter 1. We're going to read again the first two verses. The first two verses. We are camping out in these first two verses to take a few words, a word at a time. We need to understand all of these words. <laughs> but a few of them are so significant to our understanding of the work of God and of God himself. We must take this time to do so. First Peter chapter 1 verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for who you are, the great God of creation, the merciful God of salvation and redemption. Lord, we pray to you today because we stand in need of you. We need you. And Lord, we want to understand your word, and we cannot do that without you. And so we pray that you will take the words that are on the page that you inspired to be written, that you have preserved through the years, and that we have together read this morning. We pray that you would take those words and you would make them powerful in our minds and our hearts, by giving us understanding and then leading us to worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can see that we have not changed the title from last week because we didn't finish. <laughs> we actually were thinking about this last week and the week before as we began this series of expositions through this wonderful letter. Chosen pilgrims take heart. And last week we spent the bulk of our time thinking about a theological weighty introduction of stabilizing, encouraging truth. That's what this is. Verses 1 and 2 are an introduction and a greeting in a letter sent by the Apostle Peter to the churches, to the Christians that were scattered abroad through these geographical locations, through these different cities. And one of the things that we discovered in our panoramic view of the book was that one of the major themes of this book is to stand strong in the midst of persecution. That trials are coming upon the church. They were, they were already in the book of Acts, we're at chapter 3 on Wednesday nights. You have chapter 2, the church is born on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches the first sermon. Chapter 3, the first recorded apostolic miracle with the healing of the lame man who was laid daily at, at the temple area there in front of the gate. And he preaches the second sermon ever in the Christian church history, 
the Apostle Peter preaches the second sermon. By the time we get to chapter 4, they're arrested for preaching that message. Persecution has always been a part of the church and of the Christian life. Sometimes, like in our context, it's not that severe. It may be that you would miss a job promotion. It may be that you would be laughed at or maybe even mocked. It may be that someone might hurt your feelings. But for these folks in this particular time period, and for our brothers and sisters all over the world today, there was severe persecution. And it was about to get even worse. As we mentioned last week, the, the Christians were, were blamed for the burning of Rome. And that began an intense, violent persecution of Christians. Now, when you are going through challenges and difficulties of that proportion, you need ballast in your boat to keep you from tipping over under the waves and the winds of that kind of pressure. Fear that you will physically be abused and killed, that your family members will be physically abused and killed, imprisoned, tortured. You need to know that what your life is standing on is solid, unshakable truth. And so when he writes to them at the very beginning, he gives such a weighty theological introduction because he intends for that theology, that truth about God and about the work of God in their lives. He intends for that to be stabilizing and encouraging for them for the rest of their lives. It is an amazing and wonderful way to greet the church. (laughs) Good morning to the elect exiles in the world. Grace and peace be with you. Good morning to the elect sojourners and pilgrims and strangers on this earth. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, there's another phrase, I hope I get to it today. In the sanctification of the Spirit, there's another phrase. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, that's another phrase. We have to understand that is one sentence. Elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. Did you notice anything about those three phrases? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of God the Spirit, for obedience to God the Son. The Trinity is here. This, this, this is so theologically packed that we could literally take a month To think about these doctrines together. To think about what this means. The triune God is at work in their lives for grace and peace in the midst of the storms of life. 
the challenges and difficulties of living in this world as someone who does not feel at home here anymore. This world is not our home. And you feel it so intensely as you think about the sufferings that Christians go through. So this was, this is a weighty thing. And we spent all of last week looking at text after text after text after text that also contains this word elect or its counterpart chosen because that's what the word means. The word elect, exiles, elect sojourners, some, I think maybe the King James says the word aliens. What does that mean? A, someone that is not at home, they are from somewhere else, and they're here. And in this case, it's Christians who are not at home in the world. We are exiles, we are strangers, we are pilgrims in this world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world because we have been redeemed out of the world. So we looked at all of these phrases like Titus chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. I'll just pick a couple here to bring us back to where we were. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is Titus 1, 1. For the sake, why is he appointed an apostle? Why is he a servant of God? Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So it means to select, to pick out. That's what the word means. That's what it means. In reality, we mentioned in passing that it was just really another word for Christians. Because that's what Christians are. But he picks this word specifically and so do all of the other passages that God has given us that we looked at together so that we would understand the truth of what is happening. So we would be able to zoom out, as it were, to see things from God's perspective. Because when you're walking in this strange world, a lot of times you can get overwhelmed by what you see and what you experience and how people treat you. You can be overwhelmed with that. You can be consumed by that. And, and the, the scriptures often call us away from that view to give us a vision of God and sometimes even to give us the vision from God's perspective which is what he does with this word. Because from the divine perspective, God's works have been known from the beginning. And so he has selected, he has chosen us out of the world to be his people. So we have not only an introduction of weighty theological truth, but one with pointed practical intention. That they would be stabilized and encouraged by the truth of God's word. And from the divine perspective. Now, we have to ask ourselves this question again that we asked last week. If that kind of language and that kind of talk seems strange to you. 
then you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why does it seem strange to greet the church with such language? Why? It's not strange in Scripture. So it must be on account of at least two things. Number one, someone who was in leadership did not teach you about it. Number two, you yourself have missed it or have not been in God's Word to see it. That's has to be the only two logical reasons for language that is biblical language to be foreign to our ears and strange to our minds. The only logical answer is that somebody who was preaching and teaching it neglected to tell us or to read it or to preach on it. And simultaneously, we ourselves have not been carefully studying and reading, and putting to memory God's Word ourselves, if it seems strange. So what we did was we went back through and we looked at this term from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Let me just give you a few examples. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, the Bible says, For you, this is God speaking to His people, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. They even began to sing about it in Psalm 105 and verse 43. The psalmist writes, so he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. Psalm 135 and verse 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel his own possession. Coming into the New Testament, we have the same reality. Matthew 24, 22. And if those days had not been cut short, talking about the tribulation period, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Those days will be cut short. Short, or Romans chapter 8, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So if you fill that word in with its counterpart, its explanatory counterpart, it would read like this, who shall bring a charge against God's chosen? It is God who justifies. Or, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Therefore, the Apostle Paul writing again, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation. Or, as we read from Titus 1, verse 1, He does what He does. He's called to be an apostle, servant of Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So the apostle Peter is writing to the elect. He's writing in this book to the chosen of God. And he could have just simply addressed them as Christians, but he didn't. He did it intentionally so that they would understand from God's perspective who they are and what they are and how they came to be this. Because under great persecution and the struggles of life, he can say to them, in essence, 
the world may reject Jesus and not choose Jesus. And the world may reject you and not choose you, but God has chosen you. And that is intended to strengthen their faith and their confidence and their trust in who they are and whose they are. Now, this is where we stopped. So this, this doctrine and this reality of election in Scripture is not just theological truth, but it's an intentional reminder of encouragement. It is the divine perspective that they needed to see. Look, if you will, back in First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Look at how he writes and encourages them here. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christians are a chosen race, a people for God's own possession. Turn with me to the book of Acts for just a moment. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Verse 45. Acts 13, 45. We might have looked at this one. I want you to see it again. But when the Jews saw the crowds, Acts 13, 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, saying, it, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, talking to the Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, what? Believed. Look, if you will, in the book of Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 9. The next book, you have Acts and then Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, through the promise. Through the promised word of God, not through the physical descent. It's not just because I'm ethnically Jewish, but it's because of the promise that God made that it would be Isaac before he was born. This means, listen, this means, verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the prom, this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who, what? Calls. So she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice 
on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, you, you want to take home today a picture of God in your mind? Memorize this verse. If you want to have a vision of God in His greatness, I suggest this verse. He said to Moses, God did. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now this is a key verse right here. So then it depends not on what? I didn't hear you. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on who? God, who has what? Mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Look in chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. Romans chapter 11, verse 2. God has not rejected His people whom He, what's that next word? For new. Pay attention to that word. We've got to get to that. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know that the Scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what was his reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Y'all thought last week we were finished looking at these texts. And while you're turning to 2 Thessalonians, I will remind you that this is only a sampling of texts. So should the language and the terminology be foreign to us? Should it be? No. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. 2.13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through, here's that same phrase that Peter uses, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look in the book of Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, we find an interesting story. We find in the life of Jesus and His ministry, this, this event, beginning in verse 16. So this is Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus is going to go to His hometown, and they're going to reject Him. They're going to reject Him. 
Listen to what happens. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Why do the people at the end of the story get angry? Why do they get angry? Let's, let's, let's read the story. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? We know this guy. We know his dad. We know his mother. We know his siblings. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, now now listen to this. This is where it turns a corner. I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath. What is that? Why say that? Why say that? Where is he going with this? In the land of Sidon. A woman who was a widow. He's not done. And there were many lepers in the land, in Israel, in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to to the brow of the hill on which their, their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Why were they angry? He was quoting from their Old Testament scriptures. The reason they were angry was twofold. Number one, he mentioned a Gentile was healed. And secondly, and more importantly, it was because he was telling them in a roundabout way that God is the one who's in control. He was telling them that God is the one who is sovereign. That's what he was telling them. There were many widows, but he went and ministered to one of them. There were many lepers, but only one was cleansed. Why talk about that? Why speak that way? Because you have a divine selection, and that, my friends, enrages people. It does. It has that effect. But it shouldn't. It shouldn't. Now, let's turn the corner here just for a moment. The first thing that we talked about is the word elect and what that means. And we saw it in Scripture. If you want to look at these Scriptures, maybe you didn't get them all wrote down. You can see me after this is over. That's for any sermon, by the way. 
Let's turn the corner and go back for a moment to 1 Peter and think for just a few minutes here in closing about the foreknowledge of God. Let's go back and look at that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. So this is, this is let me put it to you in a phrase. Before the world was, God knew me. That's what I want you to think about. Before the world was, God knew me. And what you have to ask is, what kind of knowing is he talking about? According to the foreknowledge of God. You see, there's a lot of folks that interpret the foreknowledge of God, meaning that God just looks down into the future and sees what we're going to do and then chooses us. Now, ask yourself a question. Just be honest. Is that logical? (laughs) Does that match the word that we just looked at for two Sundays? It doesn't match it. It's not logical. In other words, they would say, God knew what I would do, and that's why I'm chosen, because of God's foresight. Foresight. Now, you have many problems with that. The first problem is that it would be equal to saying, I chose myself. That's what that would be equal to saying. If elect equals chosen, and according to the foreknowledge of God, means that God saw through the corridors of time that you would believe and then chose you, then that actually means that the word elect applies to you, right? I chose myself. This is logical thinking. Does that match the text? Do you think where they have the word elect scattered throughout the Old and New Testaments that it is referring to God or to us? It's referring to God. So that's the first problem. It would be that position, telescope, looking through time, would be equal to saying, I chose myself. And that won't work. The second problem is that it makes God reactionary. Are you Bible students? Is God reactionary? Is God sitting up in heaven, hoping, wringing His hands, and reacting to everything that's happening outside of His control on earth? Is that a picture of God in the Scriptures? It is absolutely not the picture of God in the Scriptures. Turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. It's one of the most powerful visions of God by one of the most proud and ruthless men that has ever lived. (laughs) But after God humbled him, you know his name, King Nebuchadnezzar. He is the poster boy for arrogant pride and self-centered ego. He is the one, if you recall, as you're turning to Daniel chapter 4, he is the one who after Babylon was built in all of its greatness, he, he, it was his hanging gardens that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was said that his palace was so beautiful, you could see it from afar. And he stands upon the top of it, looking out over Babylon, and he says, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have made? And God said, Oh, yeah, you did it, right? You did it. He immediately took this man's 
cognitive abilities as a human being. He actually became like a wild animal. He ran into the wilderness. His hair grew long, his nails like eagle's claws, and he was out of his mind a madman for a period of time. And then God gave it back to him. And this is what he had to say. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. Now before we read this, go back to that vision that I just shared with you. Is God a hand-wringing, pacing back and forth God, looking upon all of His creation that He has lost control of? Is that a picture of God? Or is He the sovereign God of heaven and earth who has foreplanned the future in all of its detail and is constantly and at all points in total control? That is God. Daniel 4.34 At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's God. That's God. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing that he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah chapter 46 and verses 9 and 10. Isaiah chapter 46. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Verse 10, listen to this. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is not a God who is, has lost his grip. Isaiah 14, verses 26 and 27, This is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? No one. No one. Psalm 33, verse 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans of a, of the, in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now, let's go back and think about that word foreknowledge. The word foreknowledge is translated from a Greek word that is prognosis. Prognosis. Go back to 1 Peter. It's used three times. It's used twice in this letter and once in the book of Acts, and we'll conclude. Prognosis. This is what it means. Prearrangement or 
planning in advance. That's what the word means. Foreknowledge is not talking about foresight. It's talking about foreplanning. Pre-planning. It's a pre-arrangement. It is God's foreplanning of the future that's captured in the word prognosis, which is translated in our English foreknowledge. If you look there, it says according to the foreknowledge of God. It was according to this plan of God, a predetermined plan of God. That's what he is saying. Look, if you will, there in verse 19 and 20. Verse 19, talking about how we're saved by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And here comes that word again in the Greek, same word. He was what? Foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. Now, will that, will that definition that I shared with you, will that work in that text? Did God foresee Christ? Does that work there? Can't work. The, the same word talking about Christ is used in chapter 1 talking about Christians. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Christ was. It was a, it was a relationship before the foundation of the world. You remember Jesus talking about it in John 17. Restore me to that glory that I had with you before the world began. The God of heaven is an eternal God. And He is a triune God. And the triune God has always been. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, these three are one, and they are eternal. He is eternal. So it cannot work to, to define the word foreknow in this verse that God the Father was looking into the future to see Christ. That cannot work. It is a relationship word. It means that he had a relationship of love and favor and joy before the world began. And if it's that word and that definition in verse 20, then it cannot change at verse 1. The definition remains the same. And there's one more place. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. This is the first sermon that Peter preached. Same guy, he loves this word. It's the only other place you find it in the New Testament. The concept is found elsewhere, and we'll look at that next week. The concept is found elsewhere, but the word itself, prognosis, is only in First Peter and Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he's preaching the first sermon. He's talking about Jesus of Nazareth being rejected and crucified. And he says, this Jesus... This is Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up. So let's think about this in this context. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan and the foreknowledge of God are the same. It's an explanatory word. 
the, the, the definite plan is the pre-plan that God has always had to send the Son into the world and, the, and Jesus to go to the cross and to die for sinners. It's always been His plan before the foundation of the world. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God, this Jesus was delivered up. It is a word that is talking about the plans and purposes of God that are eternal. So when he says that you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, he means you are chosen before the foundation of the world according to his predetermined plan for you. You remember when God called Jeremiah the prophet? What did he say to him? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Didn't you know any, what do you mean knew him? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Foreknowledge, foreknowing. The word knew is a relationship word. Didn't he know everybody else in the world? Does God not know everybody else on the planet? Does God not know that there are other people? Before the, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This language is everywhere in Scripture. There must be a way in which he is talking about knowing Jeremiah that he is not, not, not talking about everybody else. I know you in this way. <laughs> Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He knows everyone, yet some he knows in a unique and special way. It's a relationship word. In a loving, fixed relationship, listen, in the mind of God before the ages began. Jesus talked this way in John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. What's this knowing stuff? Just Let me finish that one. That was a good one. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. If you'd never heard that before, isn't that strange? What do you, what's all this knowing stuff? It's a relational word. It's talking about a foreknowing as a favorable relationship, a love relationship. That was fixed in the mind of God before the ages began. Matthew seven twenty three, Jesus says, Those not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. He goes on down, he says, They'll say that they did this, prophesied in my name, cast out demons in my name. And he says, I will say unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never... What do you mean you didn't know them? You didn't know they existed? He must be using the word know in a way that's different than just knowledge of something or someone. He's saying, I never knew you. I never knew you in this personal way. What about the most famous, probably, of promises in the New Testament? And with this one we close with. Romans 8.28. You know that? I bet you could quote that verse. And we know... That for all those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to His purpose. But do you know what verse 29 says? For those whom He foreknew, didn't God foreknow everybody? Not like this. This is something unique. 
This is something different than just knowledge of someone or something. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Are you glorified? Not yet, but in the mind of God you are. If you're a Christian, it's fixed in the mind of God. You're glorified. That's a past tense word. You can look it up. Fixed in the mind of God before the ages began. He set his heart on his people. Let's pray together. Father, we know this morning that these things are challenging to our brains. And we pray that in these closing moments that you would just calm us in our minds, humble us in our hearts, that we may believe what we see in your word. Give us understanding as much as our little finite minds can grasp. Expand our understanding of you, our understanding of salvation and what happens and how it happens and when it happened. And God, we want to thank you today that you are a gracious and merciful God. If you were not, there would be none saved. But because of your great mercy and grace and love, you sent your Son into this world. Lord Jesus, you went and died as a substitutionary sacrifice. You send forth your gospel. You send forth your spirit to call people to repent and believe. And we pray this morning that if there's one here that needs to do that, that even now you would call them and draw them, convict them in their hearts. If they could turn from sin and trust in the finished work of the cross. We pray this morning that we would give you all of the glory, all of the praise, because you are the one who truly deserves it. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name, and amen.